Um, what world would allow a school club to have a kissing booth at a fall festival for money? That is inappropriate. Even pre-COVID, that would never happen. I don't know. Who? <laughs> Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Feminist Fiends and Quarantine Queens, our podcast where we discuss feminism and pop culture. I'm Pate. I'm Quinn. And I'm Nellie. And we'd like to kick things off by saying a huge thank you to all our listeners and supporters. At the time we're recording this, we have almost 115 subscribers on Spotify, which is a milestone we never thought we'd be able to reach. Thank you for listening to us rant and make fools of ourselves every week. We love the work we do and are so grateful for your support. If you haven't done so, you can join the Feminist Fiend team by subscribing to our show on Spotify and following us on Instagram at Feminist Fiends. Before we dig into today's content, we'd like to remind you all to be active in your support of the Black Lives Matter movement, to have compassion and educate yourselves about the human rights atrocities happening domestically here in the United States, including issues like police brutality, as well as around the world in places like Lebanon and Yemen. As always, please stick around until the end of the show to hear our action items for this week and to hear different ways to get involved. Now it's time to make a sharp 180 degree pivot into today's discussion. Brace yourselves because this week we're talking about the Kissing Booth series on Netflix. You obviously can't see us right now, but please believe me when I say that the three of us just engaged in a deep collective eye roll because truly these films are chaotic piles of trash. However, given their popularity and a promise of a third installment, it seems only fair that we try to unpack these narratives through a critical feminist lens. Now, that being said, we aren't evil and we won't force you to listen to a three-hour episode of us dragging both films. Instead, we're going to give a brief recap for the first film and then focus more heavily on the sequel since it was released recently. For a bit of background, though, both films are based on a Wattpad story. You heard that correctly written by Beth Riegels, and are directed and written by Vince Marcello and star Joey King, Jacob Elordi, and Joel Courtney. And fun fact, I tried to read the book once, and it was terrible. I couldn't get through 50 pages of it. <laughs> also a fun fact, when I was looking up the IMDb content for this episode, it said Vince Marcello, and I freaked the fork out because I'm pretty sure that the name of the guy who's the voice actor for Ferb, no, the voice actor for Phineas of Phineas and Ferb is named Vincent Marcello, and so I freaked the fork out thinking that he had directed The Kissing Booth. However, that is simply not the case. No, they're not. (laughs) (laughs) Is it Marcello or Marcello? I don't know. I like your reading of it better because it sounds more authentic, so I think I'm just going to steal it, if that's okay. Well, I have a friend named Marcello, and his name is spelled exactly like that, and it's pronounced Marcello, so... Regardless, he directed a trash movie, so... Ah! And did did not voice Ferb. (laughs) So he has nothing going for him. (laughs) So, here's the plot of the first film, a la IMDb reviewer, your biggest fan, because I could not bring myself to write a review of this film because I just couldn't. Um, 
When Al Evans, in parentheses, Joey King, a pretty late bloomer who's never been kissed, decides to run a kissing booth at her high school's spring carnival, she unexpectedly finds herself locking lips with her secret crush, the ultimate bad boy, Noah Flynn, in parentheses, Jacob Alardi. Sparks fly, but there's one little problem. Noah just happens to be the brother of her best friend, Lee, in parentheses, Joel Courtney, and is absolutely off limits according to the rules of their friendship pact. Elle's life is turned upside down when she realizes that she must ultimately make a choice, colon, follow the rules or follow her heart. Based on Beth Riegel's self-published coming-of-age novel that became an international sensation, The Kissing Booth, in all caps, is a Netflix film written and directed by Vince Marcello. Okay, not to be dramatic, but I lost approximately 500 brain cells reading that, and also the fact that this is referred to as a coming-of-age novel. I'm sorry, but it was simply a story on Wattpad. <laughs> oh my god, we love a dramatic IMDb review reading. Thank you, Quinn. I think you found your calling. Yeah, I think that's it. Um, okay, so now that Quinn has given us a quick recap of The Kissing Booth. I think it makes sense for us to start by answering the question we typically answer last, just for the first movie, because I know we're wanting to delve more into the sequel. So, is The Kissing Booth feminist? I think we can, let's, let's rapid fire answer this, queens. No. <laughs> the end. And we're done. Okay, um, cool. End podcast. It's over. <laughs> here's the thing. I don't think that The Kissing Booth can be feminist. No Tino shade towards Beth Riegel's. I hope she's doing well and has had a great day today. However, <laughs> the film itself was written by a man, and the way that it's directed is through the lens of a man. And the entire first kissing booth is very clearly shot from the perspective of a male gaze. And I don't think that it's anything against the actors who are participating in this narrative. However, the fact that this is being consumed by people who are younger than me as a 22-year-old woman makes me incredibly uncomfortable because I remember watching this when it came out two years ago and I was able to recognize the fact that it was incredibly problematic that we were sexualizing a presumably 16-year-old young woman and we were supposed to redeem the characters that were being incredibly toxic, aka most of the men in this film. And again, I don't think that that's anything against the character that Joey King portrays, but I was really frustrated as a young woman who is a scholar of women's and gender studies to see her overly sexualized, whether that be, oh my gosh, my pants ripped, now I have to wear a teeny tiny skirt, <laughs> or like, oh my god, like I'm covered in paint, let me show my tatties. Like, I'm sorry, but when I was 16 years old, I was like an evil dance team goblin at high school and this would have like mortified me and I understand this whole idea of like wanting to empower young women but to me it's incredibly problematic that it is a male director and a male writer who is sexualizing a young woman. I also think like we see even just like so quickly at the very beginning we see victim blaming uh, through Noah Flynn when he says 
even though he says it as a joke, I do not think that it is tackled enough for it to be at all acceptable because um, it's not really drawing attention to the problem that is Noah Flynn. But he says wearing a skirt like that is asking for it basically when the guy grabs her ass. I can't remember that character's name, but that dude that she also ends up like flirting with and potentially dating. You and mean so, Tupper? Yeah, sorry, Tupper. Tupper. He's um, like a 40-year-old man. Um, yeah. Like you said, Quinn, kind of like the objectification that happens, like the male gaze, the victim blaming that we see through Noah Flynn. And then also, like, I know we're going to talk about this next, but Noah Flynn's toxic masculinity, which carries well into the second movie, in my opinion. So, and just in general, like, relationship red flags, which I know we'll tackle a lot in the in this episode. Um, it's just messy. It's, as Pate said, the answer is no, it is not feminist. It's just, like, every other female character in this movie is, like, made fun of, in a sense, by the main characters. Like, the OMG girls, that's, like, not a thing. And they're, like, making fun of these girls for, I don't... don't, Carrying bananas and water bottles. Which, like, I love drinking water, and I love eating bananas. But they're trying to make them seem like they're, like, oh, I'm this popular girl. I'm only going to eat a banana. And then Elle's, like, ugh. Elle is basically trying to be the cool girl and failing miserably. And the idea is, like, you got so hot over the summer, and now boys are attracted to you, and now you're the main character. Yeah. It's just messy. Cool. Those are our thoughts on the first one. (laughs) (laughs) It's trash. (laughs) I will say, I will say, I think the first one's better than the second one. Ooh, that's a hot take. I will say, though, I think it's good that we're tackling both of these films, even though truly, like, I'm vomiting in my mouth every time that we, like, discuss this. (laughs) But, I mean, my sister's roommate, who, like, I love and respect and consider one of my, like, favorite people in the world, like, we were having a conversation about the kissing booth. She's a couple years older than us. And she was like, oh, yeah, my little sister who just graduated from high school had me watch both these movies. And I thought they were great. Like, it was so much fun. And it was such a great romantic comedy. But I think that that just shines a light on the fact that these do need to be critically unpacked and um, observed under under a feminist microscope. Because for me, it was like, no, this is garbage. But for others, like, I can see where you would get super wrapped up in this narrative. And that's not me shading anyone out there who did get wrapped up in this narrative, because I think that it's um, compelling and obviously a lot of people connected to this story. However, I just want to, like, make the case for observing this critically and discussing it on this podcast. Now that we've talked about the first kissing booth, thank God that's out of the way. I want to talk about the fact that it received heat from critics for Noah's toxic masculinity because he is crazy controlling. Um, And the actor, Jacob Elordi himself, has super tried to distance himself from the role in recent years. In fact, I watched a recent GQ interview that he did about all of the roles that he's played throughout the years. Um, He went undercover on like Quora and Reddit and all of these things. It's on GQ's YouTube channel. And one of the questions was, oh, my girlfriend really wants me to be Noah Flint. That's her dream man. And he, Jacob Elordi, as the person responded and was like, you should not want to be Noah Flint. That is terrible. I'm so sorry for you. That's awful. But I think that it highlights the fact that a lot of women grasped onto this narrative of like the quote unquote bad boy. So 
how did the second movie try to correct some of the toxic male behavior we saw in the first film and does it succeed? Yeah, Quinn, I actually am glad that you pointed out how Jacob has kind of strayed away from identifying with this character because I actually, when I was stalking his Instagram yesterday, I noticed that there's not a single kissing booth uh, photo on that, which I know that some celebrities uh, don't actually promo their things on their on their Instagram, but it seemed like he has like different magazine covers that he's been on and things like that, and that was missing. So I actually appreciate that he isn't glorifying Noah Flynn as a character, um, even though the the entire fan base seems to. But to me, I feel like Noah Flynn is like the king of toxic masculinity, to be completely honest, and. I honestly don't think this changes in the second movie. I think while we see his character resist violence more than he did in the first film, I honestly think that the first film did more damage than could be remedied personally, just because we see him getting consistently in fights, which as we know um, are a result of toxic masculinity of kind of the expectations that society puts on men. Um, And I don't even feel like, there was acknowledgement of this history of anger in the second film really until this event came up with Marco at the end where Marco kind of pushes him like not not physically pushes him but I think does kind of emotionally push him and uh Noah basically gets in Marco's face uh after the whole dance dance revolution competition kiss yes like I I just feel like the movie could have shown him trying to recognize Noah could have shown him trying to recognize his areas of growth more and work on himself. I feel like it's just kind of this like, oh yeah, he was violent in the last film. So let's like shine a light on that and show how he's grown. But like, I I feel like it could have been a thing where he was expressing this more outwardly to Elle and things like that and showing that men can be vulnerable about this pressure that society puts on them. Obviously, like, people aren't talking outwardly about toxic masculinity necessarily. And so I don't really know if that sort of plot line would actually sell tickets, but I just, it's a movie that I would watch and I, I appreciate that we see less violence from Noah, but like, I don't think we really see growth from him, if that makes sense. So I think the toxic masculinity is definitely still there. If anything, it's because the plot has shifted from their budding romance to their long distance romance and I think it's hard to portray like if Noah's being violent or not when he's not like it's not convenient for the plot's sake like in the first movie it was supposed to be this thing like Elle was like I believe you can change and he's like my parents sent me to therapy you really think I can change they were like kind of glorifying you know this idea that girls like a girl can change a guy if he has like violent tendencies and like straight up that is a bad message to send to young women like if a guy is violent he like you're probably not going to change that and that's not something we should be you know romanticizing one thing that really bothered me about this sequel was the fact that it seemed to shift away from sexualizing Elle. That does not bother me. I think that that is simply correct. But then they shifted towards sexualizing Lee and Marco in a way that made me super uncomfortable because, again, although in real life the actors who are portraying these characters are 20-something, within the context of the film, they are high school seniors. And so there's like this moment in the beginning where it's like, Lee got ripped. And I'm like, if I, like, if I as a 22 year old woman am uncomfortable with this, 
then like, eh, that's not great. And also thinking about Marco, that scene that went on way too long where Elle is super sexualizing him and talking about him as a snack, quote unquote, and it's just incredibly painful and it's played up for comedy. I was really sitting there and I was like, again, this makes me uncomfortable because realistically this boy is underage and we're supposed to be as the audience sexualizing him through Elle's gaze. And although I appreciate the fact that we were no longer appreciating, quote unquote, appreciating Elle's body and the things that she's doing and the fact that she, quote unquote, matured over summer, that was something that bothered me was that the film seemed to pivot and say, oh, well, you know what would be feminist and would make up for the last film if we sexualize the men, which I'm sorry, but again, in the context of this film, they are not men, they are boys. I wish that they would have just not done that point blank period because we can look at Marco as an audience and recognize, oh, that is a man that Elle would find attractive. You know, it, it felt frustrating that that was having to be thrown in our face and he was having to be overtly sexualized mm-hmm. to get the point across that like, oh yeah, this is an attractive young man. That was an awful three minutes so bad. of me cringing so bad. at the TV. Yeah. Who thought that was a good idea? Vincent. Vince Marcello. <laughs> I would love to talk about the women in this film and kind of their relationships with one another because while or while while Elle is the main character this movie is definitely centered around men but I think it's really important to think about the relationships between the women and I was reading an article on She the People by Maya Betty titled The Kissing Booth 2 Review Pucker Up for Disappointment and while she highlights some compelling points she makes a bold statement in saying how, quote, the writers have avoided pitting the female characters against each other. And I was like, what? I'm like, show me what part where they're not pitted against each other. I just, I personally think they're completely pinned against one another. I mean, I would love to hear if y'all think the movie avoids this, but I also think not only does the film pin women against one another, but it also in my opinion, pins the female viewer against the characters. And I'd just love to hear y'all's thoughts on this if you think that might be the case. I agree. I think it tried to do a reverse at the end where Chloe is like, I'm sorry, like to all of you about this, <laughs> I'm simply about to do a British accent and like pray. But when Chloe's like, oh, Elle doesn't know that I'm immune to your charms. I'm like, girl how would anyone know that you in real life she is simply 28 which that's not me shading the actress who plays chloe but i was super super frustrated because and this is something we might touch on later but it makes it seem as though female relationships come incredibly hard to l which is fair i know a lot of women in my life who are naturally more drawn to men in friendships and that's something that I personally have had to get over because I was taught like as a young feminist like oh if she says that women are messy like that means that she's not worth your time but I think that it's movies like this that train women to think that way that women are constantly and always their competition and although the movie kind of reverses that towards the end by showing oh, well, Elle isn't interested in Lee and Chloe's not inv- interested in Noah. I'm not convinced, you know? And that's frustrating as 
someone who considers herself to be an intersectional feminist, I wish that I could look at this and be like, yeah, I take these women at their word. But at the same time, like, it's really frustrating because this is something that Peyton and I texted about. We both watched it last Friday and we were like, this is the worst movie we've ever seen. We simply must unpack this together before we even decided that this was going to be this week's episode. But it's really hard to see all of the women within these contexts genuinely like disrespecting their relationships with their boyfriends and also being unkind to the women on the other side of those relationships and still rooting for them. That's something that I really struggled with. And I genuinely do think that the women were pitted against each other in this film, because although Elle is unfair, quote unquote, to Chloe, that's what the film wants us to think. If I were in her position, I would probably think the same way. And the same goes for Rachel. A lot of that misunderstanding stems from the fact that Lee, who was the middleman, was unable to convey Elle's true intentions. Lee was not a good friend or a good character in this movie. And he, I thought, like, you know, I felt more sympathy for him in the first movie because, like, it really was more about, like, him and Elle's friendship and how it would be affected when she dated his brother. And now it's how he is being a terrible boyfriend to Rachel. And then also throwing Elle under the bus because now Elle and Rachel have beef, but Elle isn't aware of it. And, like, I do think that Elle was probably, like, stepping on some boundaries. I think, for me, a whole thing about this movie is if the characters just communicated better, the problems would not have happened. But there's not good communication between Elle and Noah, and there's not good communication between Rachel, Lee, and Elle. And that's where mainly the problems stem from. Okay, and this brings me to my next question, which is a question that I... I even had it in the first movie, but like in the second movie, it is super underline, underline, exclamation point. And that is, why does this movie work so hard to try and convince us that Elle and Noah belong together when quite honestly, their relationship is toxic? And like, this is kind of a side note side of things, but like, we're supposed to believe that Elle is empowered. Like, Nellie, you brought up that first quote in the first movie when Noah says, jokingly, oh, well, you know, you were wearing that skirt you were asking for. And she comes back at him and is like, seriously? But it's like, why do men dictate Elle's life decisions? And I hate to say that, but she seems to be guided by this manual that she and her best friend made when they were like five. Which a lot of those rules, I'm like, I would not have thought of that when I was five. But I think it's a good question to be like, why do we think that they should end up together? Why does the movie work so hard to try to push this narrative? And also, why are they pushing Elle as like this feminist empowered icon when we as viewers see that that's not the case? It's because this idea that a bad boy becoming a good guy for a girl is normal and romanticized and I'm tired of it. It was all over Wattpad. It was all over young adult fiction and it's just allowing young women to expect like, oh, if he has anger problems, I know I already touched on this, but just like saying it again, I think the the narrative is supposed to make us root for Noah and Elle to work out 
and we just completely ignore the fact that it's toxic and completely ignore the fact that Noah has anger issues and does nothing to combat them. But like, we're supposed to think, oh, he's getting angry because he cares so much. Like, that's not sexy. That's not cool. And it's honestly annoying that they've made a whole franchise out of this sexy bad boy who has anger issues. Yeah, Quinn, I'm really glad you asked this question because I know you and I were talking about it the other day. I feel like we see multiple relationship tropes come up in this movie. We see like a needy and controlling type. And this is kind of in the context of like romantic relationships or friendships. But we see like kind of the needy and controlling type. We see like the type that wants to get off the illusion that they're not caring. And also the type that like self-sabotages and like gaslights themselves to their relationship's demise. Except we don't see any of these conflicts resolve themselves. <laughs> like we truly do not. And everything somehow goes back to normal. I, I mean, y'all, do y'all notice that? Yeah. Like my Betty, my queen, shout out to your review. <laughs> In her review, she touched on this saying, quote, over the course of the film, instead of showing the impact of these dilemmas or the characters solving them, writer-director Vince Marcello, we don't stand, simply reiterates the issues incessantly. There's nothing in the reel that the trailer and promos didn't tell me. Burn. There's no resolution, even at the very end, just an illusion of a happy and upbeat vibe, end quote. In my opinion, this movie gives viewers the impression that problems just solve themselves and basically justifies toxic behavior. I think it's completely unrealistic and glorifies a culture of gaslighting and toxic masculinity like we talked about before. Um, I don't think Noah and Elle belong together. I don't think Rachel and Lee belong together. I think they all need a clean slate and to think about their areas of growth if they have any hope in having healthy relationships with each other. That's my opinion. But Oh, also, I just think, just to wrap up my thought, I feel like Elle lets men dictate her life decisions because she has internalized the patriarchy and equates love and romance with success. And I think that's why she makes her, like, big, a big, big major life decision based on a boy. I mean, we don't know what she actually decided. Two boys. I don't yeah, two boys. Bo- boy. Both of them. Well, and I guess you could argue her mom. I was going to say the same thing! I think that the film tries to frame it as like, oh, she doesn't have a maternal figure. And so that's probably why she bases things off of the men around her. But that's something that I wish that the film had addressed more because in both films, we're supposed to empathize with Lee. And I find it a little hard to do so when it may or may not be against Elle's best interest. Because I mean, Again, if they came up with these plans when they were like five years old or in kindergarten or whatever that we hear in the first film, it makes absolutely no sense that at five years old, I would be like, yeah, me and my best friend have to go to Berkeley. Like that absolutely has to happen. But I think that that's an example of how the patriarchy is embedded within Elle because she feels the need to go along with Lee's plan that she made when she was five, which hello, who's, what? Or she's going with Noah's plan. I don't think that we see a lot of Elle's plan that's disconnected from either trope. Okay, so this makes me want to go on to my question about who in The Kissing Booth 2 exclusively is the villain and who is the quote-unquote good character 
Because I think on paper, watching it, we're supposed to not like Chloe because she's after Noah. And then, of course, we're supposed to be like on Elle's side because she's the main character. But after watching it and thinking about it in a critical eye, hot take, the villain is Elle and the good guy is Marco. And I will die on the hill. I stand Marco. He is probably the least problematic character. And he really got screwed over by Elle in the end. I would agree, but I would also argue that, again, Elle is a character that is shaped and created within the male gaze, which we see in the first film, but also it plays out within the second film. I I think of that moment when, which seems unrelated, but that moment where Rachel is like, oh my god, yeah, first day of school, and Elle makes her get in the backseat of the car. And it just shows <laughs> Elle as, like, a completely unempathetic character. And we're supposed to root for her throughout this film. But for me, it was very clear that she had been shaped by a male screenwriter and a male director. Because even in high school, at my pettiest and my worst, just genuinely, I like, I call myself an evil dance team goblin in high school because I do not identify with the person that I was five years ago. However, I think that Elle is that person, but on steroids, she's shaped to be incredibly inconsiderate and incredibly self-focused and not in an empowering way where she's forging forward in a way that's going to benefit her future. She's kind of crafted of this character as this character, excuse me, who bases her entire life decisions on the wills of men, which is really frustrating to watch. So And this is terrible to say, but, like, as an intersectional feminist, I think Elle is the villain of the movie. But, like, taking a step back, I think that the people who wrote and produced this movie are the true villains of this movie. And I do not think that there is a good character. I mean, I guess it's Marco, right? Like, that's how the movie sets it up to be. I mean, like, why, like... I would be curious for your flaws on Marco, besides the fact that he kissed a girl that has a boyfriend. Yes, that was a bad call. But, like, I just felt so bad for him when he wanted to talk to Elle and she blew him off. Like, that is also something I had a problem with because it's, like, you know, portraying to this audience that it's okay to honestly manipulate someone and then never talk to them again because you're like oh yeah I'm sorry it's always been Noah you're nobody to me after he did so much to her and then the end really got me when his friend's like she's not worth it dude and Marco's like yeah she is because that's a screenwriter's telling trying to like make us like Elle and be like yeah she's pretty she's smart and like all the boys want her and it's like why would Marco want her she makes him do the kissing booth and she basically like convinces him to do this dance dance revolution competition and then basically promises him none of the prize money and like that is just absurd yeah I definitely think Marco is a good guy in this for the most part in this movie I kind of thought that 
and again, it's hard for me to think about this in the context of like why they're placed in the film by the like screenwriters, but purely in terms of like the characters themselves, truly the only characters that were unproblematic, in my opinion, were Ollie and Miles. I had to look up their names because I genuinely do not feel like they were like we were introduced to them, which is problematic. Is that the gay couple? Yeah, the gay couple. So like their love story is sweet, but they are also completely tokenized as the only LGBTQ plus characters in the movie. And but like I think that they're relationship is sweet but like this series is incredibly heteronormative and so if we're thinking about it kind of in the way that like like you mentioned Quinn like how the reason why they're placed in the movie and kind of the narrative they're showing this plot line is basically thrown in as a desperate attempt to appear woke and we know that we don't like Vince Marcello so I feel like he's the villain Also, okay, wait, real quick to not, to, like, alleviate a little bit of roast off of Vince's shoulders. Like, yes, I know we're talking about the movie itself, but I read a review on Goodreads about The Kissing Booth because it's literally trash. It's such a bad book. I'm sorry to the girl who wrote it because she was 17 when she wrote it. Um, Good job. Like, a lot of people liked it, but it's just not good. I hope you're not listening to this, girl. Anyways, but someone was like, this is so unrealistic because it is written by a teenager imagining a world where teenagers had no consequences and adults were not present. So that's why like so many crazy things happen and like why it is so ridiculous. And then I think you take a ridiculous premise and then give it to a male screenwriter and give them a bunch of money and a Netflix deal and boom, you got the kissing booth one, two, and three. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great transition into this kind of next sequence of our of our show. So we thought since we all pretty much hate this movie, it would be fun um, to dedicate a portion to this episode of just straight up roasting The Kissing Booth and The Kissing Booth 2. So we've created a list and we're just going to dive in and just freaking tear it apart. So rapid fire, what are the worst, most confusing, cringiest moments for y'all? Um, what world would allow a school club to have a kissing booth at a fall festival for money? That is inappropriate. Even pre-COVID, that would never happen. I don't know. <laughs> Dude. And also, they're like, the people that approved it were also teenagers. Where was the principal? I don't know. How did this movie possibly secure the rights to build me a buttercup? It truly <laughs> is not good enough for that. <laughs> it's not good enough for this song. Oh, also, genuinely, this is on a different note, but here's my next one. Why does Noah Flynn, this is my biggest WTF moment, why does Noah Flynn have a fire going in his Harvard dorm room in August? First of all, I've been to Harvard dorms in June, not to flex, and and most of them are not air-conditioned, so I'm positive that you do not need a fire, sir. Uh, Also, it's August. Like, there's just no reason. Like, it's not that cold in Boston in August, I can promise you that. Um, the cringiest scene for me, in my opinion, is the slow-mo dance dance revolution dance practice where Marco and Elle are dancing together. I had to look away. Um, this is something that, like, I emphatically texted Paige about because with any movie that I watch, I spend most of the time, like, watching the film, just Googling people who were in the film because I'm nosy and petty and curious. But y'all, the woman who plays Rachel is dead ass 30 in real life. Like, I'm going to take a moment of silence. She is simply 30. And like, (laughs) I'm team Rachel because Lee is the most 
poopy pinata of a boyfriend of the like century. But if I were her, I would assume that he and Lee are he and Elle are boinking. Like, how could you not? Like, hello? I think that she was totally justified. And although I appreciate at the end-ish when she's like, you let me say all those bad things to her, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, girl, you are too cute, too fun, too old in real life to be dealing with this nonsense. I'm also team Rachel. Okay, (laughs) here's another confusing thing that happened in both films. But you would not be finding out where you're where you got into college at the same time as graduation. Like, you simply would not be like, did you get in on the day of graduation? Like, maybe you were trying to, you were figuring out if you were getting off the wait list, but that just simply wouldn't be hap- happening. May 1st happens, like, when you have to make your decision before all, 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 all high school graduations. <laughs> anyway, also, there were flaws in this timeline in the script in the first movie. Like, in what world would you leave for college the day after prom? He didn't even have, like, Noah Flynn didn't even have a graduation. He was like, I'm leaving. He didn't end up going, but I was just like, what? I'm sorry, what? Also, simply, who is going to tell this young woman that $50,000 would not cover a single year at Harvard if she was paying full tuition? Also, who is funding this competition? Like, I was a competitive dancer when I was younger. Hashtag in my youth. But genuinely, like, I was second runner-up at Nextar Murfreesboro and won $25. Like, (laughs) hello? (laughs) What person is like, hey, I've lived a privileged life. I have a lot of money. And you know what? I want to spend it on a dance competition. But not just any dance competition. A dance dance revolution competition. Hello? That was my thing. Like, imagine... You've been studying the art of ballet for 10 years, and then you, like, find out that this couple won $50,000 for doing a video game dance. How would that make you feel? The answer is bad. Also, just the fact that this <laughs> this movie, like, the premise of this movie is Dance Dance Revolution is just, like, hilarious to me. With I loved when the entire, like, and not to be, like, oof, like, like I have bangs but I competed at worlds in my day I competed at nationals in my day hell yeah <laughs> I saw the, like the crowd for this dance dance revolution performance <laughs> I was I was shook to my core like literally when I looked out into the audience when I was competing it was like my grandmommy and my parents like no one cares that much I can promise you no one gives a toot in the toilet about dance dance speaking of money for college so it's no secret that Lee and Noah and their family live in a stupid mansion. We see it in the first movie when they have a party, and then we see it again in the second movie. It's like, it's, it's huge. It's disgusting. Unless I lived there, then it would be beautiful. But, so, Elle also is like, oh yeah, Molly Ringwald is my surrogate mother. And she has not offered one penny. For her college fund. Like, that is messed up. Like, like if you literally consider this woman, like, your mother, and she's stupid rich, and she's not giving you any money, so that you have to go to a Dance Dance Revolution contest, pick some different friends. That's all I gotta say. Um, so, also, I think a big, big question that we've all been wondering is, who is the audience here? Because we've talked and seen a lot of like 
you know, questionable behavior and it would be bad if a young audience was watching this. Um, but you know, almost every adult or young adult that I talked to that has watched this movie is like, oh yeah, it's so cheesy. It's so bad. So who actually is watching this and enjoying this? I hope it's not 12 year olds because there are some sex scenes and this woman who sang at the, like at the Halloween dance is wearing lingerie, which is like fine and good. But like, if you're 17 at a high school dance, that would never happen. And it's just giving people unrealistic expectations about what to expect in high school and relationships. And also it's not that easy to get into Harvard. Why are we acting like Elle's like college app essay was good? It wasn't. I don't know who the heck the audience is here because I wish I could say that it's not 12 year old. But like I said, like my sister's roommate whose sister is just now like a graduating senior in high school. So that means that she probably would have been about 15 when the first movie came out. That makes me so uncomfy because I think about me as like a 12 or 13 year old young woman. I would have eaten this shit up. Oh, I yeah. would have absolutely loved it. Like it makes me very uncomfortable because again, I don't want to make it sound like I'm like a Puritan. Yes, I came from Tennessee, which is like abstinence only sex ed. But at the same time, I don't feel comfortable like sexualizing teenagers. And this is something that as someone who's graduated from college, I've really struggled with. And it's like a big issue within these two films where we watch these high schoolers having sex. Like, they are minors. That is so messy. So I would like to think that the audience here is a little bit older than high school age. Not even because I think that it's inappropriate for high schoolers to have sex. Like, it's been proven that they do. But just to sexualize people in this way makes me uncomfortable. But I don't think that's a true statement. Like, I really think that because the characters are within a high schooler's age that's what it's catered to and that makes me uncomfortable because if we're supposed to think of Elle as like a 15 16 17 year old and we're watching her have these sexual encounters and experiences that's a little bit messy I just looked at the rating and since it's produced by Netflix it's like a tv rating not a movie rating so it's tv 14 but you know you got 12, 11-year-olds, you know, sneaking into their parents' Netflix account and watching The Kissing Booth 1 and 2. Or maybe not Also, it literally has, like, emojis in the title. So parents are probably like, yeah, watch that. It looks harmless. Yeah. So even if it's rated TV-14, it's not, like, necessarily saying that outwardly. No, it's true. Like, I don't think Netflix, like, when you're about to watch a movie it gives you the the rating so that could lead a lot of people to think it is appropriate for young ages and it's not even just like the sexual you know nature of the two movies it also has a lot of like negative learning points from relationships and school also why does no one have homework in this very unrealistic (laughs) did y'all notice that (laughs) When did Elle have time to, like... I'm glad they didn't. They would have had some, like... They would have had some cringe, like, tutor... Like, cliche tutor scene where they're, like, having sex on oh, the books. Marco, so I'm glad that didn't happen. tutor me yeah. in Spanish. They would literally do that. They would literally make it problematic like that. Okay, so... 
Now we're getting to our age-old question. Is The Kissing Booth 2 a feminist film? No. I think I've roasted this film enough. It has a lot of areas of growth. Inevitably, I will watch the third one when it comes out and roast that one also. I think it's sad that in a world where still areas movies with areas of growth, but like feminist movies like Booksmart and Someone Great exist and provide a new age of feminist film for young people, movies like The Kissing Booth continue to exist. So no, it's not feminist. Yeah, I think it's pretty obvious. <laughs> I agree with Nellie's sentiment. It's really frustrating because although I think that this film tried to pivot towards quote-unquote female empowerment or like marketable female empowerment opposed to the first film um it's still really frustrating as a viewer to watch this and if my daughter were to watch this film I think that I would have to like print out a worksheet and a study guide wait that makes me sound like I have a daughter why do I do this every single week it's a hypothetical. It's every fine. Episode. You it's literally fine. said this every episode. So let's just have an inside joke. Quinn's daughter. Would I she watch this? Literally, okay, this is actually like a fun fact. Like, I've talked to my uterus. I know that I'm simply only having daughters. So I guess that, like, maybe that's what I'm talking about. I'm 22. I'm not having a baby. But if I were to have a baby and she were a daughter and she were to watch The Kissing Booth too, I would, like, print off a study guide and be like, sister let's not get wrapped up in this because I think that it's super dangerous and as I said I think that I would have eaten this up as like a between the ages of 12 and 17 I would have been all over this but no I do not think that it is feminist I think that it sets up super unrealistic portrayals of young women um it sexualizes young men and it pits women against each other which makes me uncomfortable Instead of asking if each movie we watch is feminist, we're going to start saying, can Quinn's daughter watch it? And the answer is, the only way that Quinn's daughter would watch The Kissing Booth is if Quinn would watch it with her and be able to point out all the bad, bad stuff. Quinn's daughter will have to listen to this podcast before watching the film. Quinn's daughter would only watch The Kissing Booth in order to know what not to do in a relationship and the boys not to date. Oh my god. I'm literally sweating. Like, I promise. Quinn's (laughs) daughter. To all of our followers, I simply not have a child, have had a child. I wish I had. I love children. But, like, hello? Okay. I think this is a great way for us Hmm. to wrap up um as in previous episodes we have some resources and action items to share with y'all this week i'm plugging love is respect which is a project of the national domestic violence hotline and quote the ultimate resource to empower youth to prevent and end dating abuse while this week's film may not provide the most overt examples of abusive relationships, we certainly see some red flags that there are unhealthy relationships at play. Not only does this resource provide examples to help individuals seeking support and self-care, but it also provides resources to support others. There are tabs on how to help a friend, coworker, roommate, parent, stranger, child, how to be an LGBTQ ally, and how to help undocumented immigrants. This resource also provides relationship resources like dating basics, resources to promote healthy relationships, and resources that highlight types of power and abuse. 
We've highlighted many resources that give you opportunities to learn and donate, and this is another opportunity. Please consider exploring Levis Respect's website at levisrespect.org to learn about healthy relationships and signs of abuse. As we've seen and talked about in today's episode, the power of young women in writing is super, super influential. This week, I want to highlight the LA-based creative writing and mentoring organization, Write Girl. From their website, quote, through one-on-one mentoring and monthly creative writing workshops, girls are given techniques, insights, and hot topics for great writing in all genres from professional women writers. Workshops and mentoring sessions explore poetry, fiction, creative nonfiction, songwriting, journalism, screenwriting, playwriting, persuasive writing, journal writing, editing, and more, end quote. So as you can see, they do a heck of a lot. Bright Girl aims to give young women from disadvantaged backgrounds, specifically within the LA community, access to mentorship opportunities and more. You can find out more about Bright Girl, their mission, and ways to get involved or donate at Right Girl, that's W-R-I-T-E girl.org. They're a super cool organization, and if Beth Regals can wreak havoc on Netflix, why can't other young women across the LA County? The foundation I wanted to choose as my action item is One Love Foundation. A few episodes back, Dayla plugged this when we were talking about the other woman, and I think it's important to reshare for the purpose of this episode. So One Love teaches college students the signs of healthy and unhealthy relationships as a, mean to, as a means to avoid finding oneself in an abusive partnership while also learning how to love better. They engage with young people with films and honest conversations, and you can find their website at joinonelove.org. Um, and their website will show you how you can volunteer, fundraise, or to host a workshop. To end this week's episode, we want to pull a quote from the film, which again makes us sweaty and uncomfortable. However, this is kind of like one of those Wayne Gretzky, Michael Scott's moments. Um, And our quote for this week is, the best thing to hold on to in life is each other. Audrey Hepburn, end quote, the kissing booth. So thank you for listening to this. This has been Feminist Fiends and Quarantine Queens. Wow! Yeah.